0: Last time on HI101, we talked about the origins of the Knights Templar as a monastic fighting order sworn to protect pilgrims in the era of the Crusades, following their unintentional path to vast amounts of wealth and influence in the Western world. Today we'll talk about why the order disappeared, as well as what makes them so intriguing 800 years after their disappearance. Let's begin. All right, I'm here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. How's it going? Pretty good. good. Uh, last time we were talking about the Knights Templar and uh, kind of where they kind of where they peaked in the 1290s or so, the network that they had sort of set up for themselves across all of Europe and you know a little bit of Asia, the works that they had done in uh, in Spain, and their vast amounts of wealth and influence in the majority of European society at that point in time through their uh, their virtual invention of of modern banking. <laughs> and uh, and through the many religious donations from from pious uh, Europeans. And finally, we ended on their consideration and, and public declaration of plans to create a Templar state similar to what the Teutonic Knights had already done in Prussia.
1: Especially now that they had lost their primary purpose.
0: Yes, of, of protecting pilgrims in the Holy Land. Uh, it was a bit of a I don't want to say completely directionless time for them because I mean they were certainly still productive. There were things happening in uh, in Cyprus certainly at this point in time and things like that. But um, it, it was it was a bit of a blow to them to lose the exact function that they had been created for initially. All that having been said, I want to talk about something that has absolutely nothing to do with the Templars, at least the first blush, for probably a little while. Fair enough. It's gonna matter, I promise. I believe you. We're going to talk about Philip IV of France. Okay. Philippe. Sorry. <laughs> and when we were talking about this when we were talking about this uh, this topic, I I sent you a message quickly and I was very excited about something. I said that I found cuz cuz we had been talking about your last time on the show with yeah. uh, with Napoleon. And we had had initially talked about maybe looking at other Conquerors, like, you know, going for a sort of theme. Trying to stick to a theme, uh, yeah. You had had heard that um, other guests have kind of stuck to a theme, mostly accidentally, before now, and and we're considering doing the same. I found your link to Napoleon. Which is awesome. Which is very exciting for me, especially when you find out what this link is. So (laughs) watch out for that. It's coming up. Awesome. Philippe IV was born in 1268, and... uh, Was known as uh, Philippe the Fair. Not like he's very fair, like just, but like really good looking. Okay. He was like a super good looking teen apparently. (laughs) Fair enough. Enough so that like he he got one of his like royal epithets set as the fair. That's, not many people get that. Yeah. He was anything but actually fair in the other sense of the word though. He was a bit of a uncompromising character. To the point that one of his other epithets was the Iron King. So, yeah, there's a there's an interesting... Yeah, calling him the fair just seems a little bit wrong. I'm probably going to stick with the fourth. <laughs> he was a really interesting guy in that um, because he started on the throne at 17, he was old enough to know that he wanted, you know, to, to very carefully control the direction of France. Like, he, he understood uh, the power involved with being a monarch. But... He was young enough that he relied heavily on a bureaucracy to help him administer all of France, which is fairly big and difficult to look after. Usually what you see is either someone that became king at like age two and like, you know, worked with a, a protector and, and, you know, have virtually no power. And when they do come to power, seem to basically be puppets of the people that raised them anyways. Or you see people coming to the throne as grown adults and they seem fairly uh sure-footed and, and fairly independent he was this interesting blend of both in that what he decided to do was make the, the bureaucracy work for him in fact he's he's one of the notable things that he does is call the first meeting of the three estates which becomes a big thing if you ever look at uh french revolutions so the three estates is like a, a parliamentary assembly uh the three estates being the clergy the nobility and everyone else Right. And and that's gonna that's gonna evolve through uh, parliamentary law for France for the next several hundred years. But and we, we can kind of leave that alone. But he's the kind of person who feels that calling the three estates is a reasonable uh, solution to solving a national problem, rather than making a, a firm personal decision. But he's also going to guide the three estates into doing more or less what he wants to do. He's just getting everyone else to do the the
1: detail work.
0: Okay. So he's an he's an ideas man.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> High concept, he'll whiteboard it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He also had a very high opinion of his place in the universe. Well, uh, if people started calling him the fair from a fairly early age to mean that he's a, a good looking guy, I feel like...
0: And became king at 17. Yeah.
1: I feel like you're not going to be a modest person.
0: Have you ever heard of what's translated into English as the order of the world? as an idea during the medieval times there's this idea that there's a hierarchy starting from just dirt working its way up through plants and various animals to people to classes of people uh, to the heavens and then to God and that this order is set and it is a a function of the universe it is part of a nature of the nature of the universe that certain things are just better or worse than other things and God Uh, decreed that it would be this way and that is the way that it is this is an idea that will only really be broken down again during the the enlightenment but the French monarch in the system the order of the world was basically only beneath God you he was he was a divinely ordained monarch he 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 had supreme power that was derived from God he was appointed by God in the French system there's some really interesting uh, justification for all this that we don't really need to get into, but I I mean every monarch at this point is really considered only a step below God in Above the hierarchy the things. Now, that's the question, isn't it? Above the pope? Philip believed so. Mhm. Philip absolutely believed so. The problem there is that the pope is also only a step below God in fact in the in the organization of the church the the pope is the closest thing to a person who can commune directly with god and you know in centuries later you get, get this idea of papal infallibility in which the pope would give a decree that is divinely inspired directly by the holy spirit through him and when he speaks in that capacity what he says is infallible cannot be wrong now a pope has only spoken with infallibility twice in history so a lot of people will talk about it they don't really necessarily understand what infallibility is what did they say one just was to that's no it's a a perfectly valid question one was to affirm the immaculate conception of mary which is a tenet held by the roman catholic church but it isn't really held by any of the the protestant branches oh man again i could talk about this all day i have this really (laughs) i I, this is one of those things that I know people find kind of boring. I am so fascinated with the workings of church politics, especially in the Middle Ages, because just the the passion with which people fought over these really seemingly minute details and and seemingly inconsequential details it it absolutely fascinates me, especially the 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 way in which they defended their positions and the 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 fervor with which they defended their positions, right. Again, I recognize that not everyone shares this passion. I wish they did. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really interesting stuff. I'm trying to remember what the other decree of infallibility was. I believe it was the assumption of Mary, which is the doctrine that rather than dying and being buried, Mary, the mother of God, was taken up into heaven, meaning that the only two people who have done that in the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church are Jesus and Mary. So both of them were, were done with the express intent of elevating the status of Mary within the church.
1: Right. They're certainly not abusing this power for, you know, Yeah. every so, Tuesday shall be taco Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That would be a papal bull. Right.
0: A bull is a, an official declaration that comes from the, the seat of the papacy. And we're going to talk a lot about those, but a papal bull is not spoken with papal infallibility. Papal infallibility doesn't actually exist until the 19th century. Okay. That's a concept that doesn't even exist for these people, mm. but there will be papal bulls issued. Those are declarations, and they carry quite a bit of weight, but they're not infallible, right? Even at this point, the idea of him of of the pope uh, gaining direct inspiration from God speaking through his mouth is not really a, a, a an enshrined part of the the papal office.
1: It feels like a, a older school kind of concept like if you just told me about it i'd be like oh that's something from the time period we're talking about now not like right 200 years ago yeah and and i mean it's it's not as though
0: i i maybe i may be out of turn on this and i'll definitely update it on in, in the notes i believe that it's the fact that papal infallibility was uh enshrined as part of the catechism in the 19th century and that there are times when popes have spoken in the past that were considered like informally uh, infallible or weren't understood at that point in time to be infallible but after the fact have been considered to be if that makes sense yeah I think so okay but I would have to look into that there's only there's only the two times where a pope has spoken with full knowledge of his own infallibility in the matter I guess is the is the better way to and it would be
1: appropriate to say that the rest is just bull. that's a terrible joke and I love it
0: (laughs) that was really really good Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I love it. It's perfect. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So the question is, well, what, what is the... Okay, well, we've got we've got the Pope who's directly below God, and we've got the King who's directly below God. Well, where do the Pope and the King sit in relation to each other? And the answer is really fuzzy for a couple of reasons. Number one, well, those are two different domains. You're looking at the, the physical domain and the spiritual domain, right? The King has authority over the Pope, theoretically, politically. But the Pope would have dominion, theoretically, spiritually. Except then we also muddy the waters with the fact that at this point in time, there are the papal states in Italy that have things like standing army and own land and actually exert physical er, uh, political influence in the area. So all of a sudden the Pope's got a physical presence as well. Yeah, and, and this is not a new thing. In fact, the idea of a Pope being solely a spiritual leader, again, is within the last... Hundred and thirty years or so, um, fairly recent concept. There were a lot of changes to the church uh, in in the late nineteenth century that really transformed it from an entity that we wouldn't really recognize today into more or less what we think of the pope, uh, the, the the seat of or the office of pope being. Um, but yeah, it's it's fairly recent stuff. Philip was in this really difficult position where his father had essentially bankrupted the state, fighting. Various wars. We don't have to get into all the details of all the wars. I, I find war details get a little boring. Suffice it to say, France was more or less broke. owed a lot of money to a lot of people. And boy, was that troublesome. So Philip goes, you know who has a lot of money? The church. They're getting their tithes every week from all their parishioners. All that money is flowing straight out of France. You know what? I'm going to put a tax on that. And the Pope at the time, Boniface VIII, went, well, you can't tax tithes, those are religious offerings, they're holy. You know, I, I'm the Pope, I'm the Church, those people are giving money to the Church, the Church isn't supposed to be taxed, that's not how this works. Now, Boniface VIII was also a really interesting guy with a bit of a complex going on, because uh, his predecessor, Celestine V, was... A really interesting guy as well. I don't want to spend too much time on him, but the uh, they hadn't elected a pope in like three years. They were deadlocked for a really long time. And Celestine was basically this hermit who wrote a letter to the, uh, the, the the College of Cardinals and said, the church is suffering. And in my opinion, if you guys don't elect somebody soon, it's going to be really harmful to the Western church. And one of the cardinals said, you know what? By the power of the holy spirit i feel that we should or i, I nominate this i forget what his actual name is that but guy. this guy this for pope and he was he was acclaimed by the college rather than actually elected through conclave so there is this there is this provision that if uh, an individual who is eligible for pope is universally acclaimed by the college of cardinals um it's considered an act of the holy spirit and that person person isn't invested with the office of pope and this guy went, "What? I'm, a, I'm just a hermit. I don't want to be pope." And he tried to turn it down, and he tried running, and they tracked him down, and they brought him in and made him pope. So <laughs> That's his, a great story. his five months in office con- consisted mainly of him writing a bull that con- that confirmed the the uh, the right of the pope to abdicate
1: uh, abdicate the office of pope, and then he stepped down. I, as the pope, declare my ability to stop. Being
0: yeah. the pope yeah yeah so you know there was all that stink a couple of years ago with uh, uh, benedict the yeah. se- 16th stepping down and it was kind of like well the last time this happened was so so long ago and it's been hundreds of years yeah, there there have been popes that have stepped down he was one of them and then they he invented uh, it apparently no he didn't invent it there were people oh. before him as well okay. he just wrote a bull basically saying like i'm going to do this but so you know i'm the pope and i say it's okay for the pope to do this thing just so there's no doubt about it Good deal. And he just wanted to go back and live out the rest of his life as a hermit. Just in peace. Just a, a quiet life of prayer. I don't want to hear
1: more about that guy, but let's... Uh,
0: There's not, not a lot into... more to say about no. that guy. That's the thing. He's he's really interesting. So so Boniface is, is elected after this guy. And he's worried, because this is the climate that we're in, that somebody's going to uh, take Celestine and install him as an anti-pope an anti-pope is this idea that you can have two popes at the same time both claiming to be the actual pope Uh, it happens a couple of times through history don't worry about it too much but because there's that political aspect of it as well he's worried that he's going to lose power he's going to lose face if someone takes celestine and installs him as an anti-pope because it seems that he's been forced to be pope before and because this question of abdication despite this papal bull is a little bit in question so he takes Celestine and he locks him up in a castle for the remainder of Celestine's life, which isn't that long, really. But he's Pope and he's keeping the ex-Pope locked up. Poor guy. Yeah, and, and Boniface kind of carries this bit of a power complex over through a lot of this. And I don't know how much I can really attribute it to the way that he was, elect- he was elected, but it's certainly the way he dealt with being elected kind of speaks to his it's further context. His, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... This is the guy who Philip IV tries to tax, and they they do not see eye to eye. To eye. So they start doing things like uh, Boniface will write a papal bull, basically saying, you know, you can't uh, you can't tax church revenue, and then Philip issuing a decree that doesn't actually prohibit or, or doesn't actually uh, continue the um, the taxing, but. Uh, puts an embargo on sending any gold, silver, or precious jewels to the papal states out of France. And then, you know, uh, uh, Boniface responds with the papal bull, uh, affirming the place of the pope above the, the king in, in all matters, secular or, or spiritual. And then, you know, back and forth. And one of the bulls is in Latin called, because they're all in Latin. Every papal bull, even to this day, is written in Latin. It's called um, Ascuta fili. Which means, listen, son. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't think is how the inflection was really meant. (laughs) But he wrote a papal bull called, listen, son. (laughs) That's great. Which was the same nonsense over. Philip had one of his aides burn it in front of the uh, envoy from the Vatican. So Boniface excommunicates Philip, as well as a couple of his ministers. Uh, He excommunicated the king? Yeah. Okay. Excommunication is is not quite as final as maybe it sounds. In, in in the church it's meant to be less punitive and more a way of forcing someone to understand how far they've strayed from the righteous path. Mm. So it's not like irreversible. It's it's just the strongest way he can say, You are super out of line right now. Get yourself together. All right. Listen, son. Listen, son. <laughs> So Philip did the reasonable thing and sent his chief minister, du... how do you say that, Guillaume, I guess, Guillaume du Nogaret, with an army of 2,000 soldiers, to one of the Pope's residences and have him arrested. And so he went and he kidnapped the Pope. This is escalating fast. He kidnapped the Pope. Sound familiar?
1: Hey, that's what Napoleon, Napoleon did. Napoleon had his very own pope. Napoleon had that.
0: his own pet pope walking around <laughs> with him, Pius VII. Yeah, for a good five years, and so did Philip. Well, S- kinda, so far. kinda. What What really happened was they went. It's it's a it's a villa called Anan uh, Ananyi uh, and um, there was a, one of the commanders named Sciarra Colonna. Uh, told uh, Noiret told the pope that listen, you should just step down. Like, just get this over with. Step down. We'll get a new pope in. This will all be over. And this pope told him, uh, I would sooner die than step down. And so this, this dude, this dude, Colonna, straight up slaps the pope. <laughs> and it's known to this
1: day of, as the, the slap of an Like, he slapped the pope. And now he is a named slap that we still talk about today. Yeah. That's amazing. I wish I could ever slap. I, I want to slap somebody that gets a name. I want to know what talk the about. guy's face looked like. The Pope. Yeah. What did his face look like? <laughs> He's the Pope. He
0: doesn't get slapped. <laughs> they managed to hold him there for all of three days before, you know, local Italian troops managed to rally and push this force out. So, I mean, they didn't have the Pope that long. During that section of three days, they almost certainly beat him pretty mercilessly. He was not treated super well. Yeah. Nogare well,
1: after the slap, I imagine it just got worse. Yeah, that was just the start of things. Yeah.
0: That's just also the only thing that was really admitted to. Nogare wouldn't let anyone kill the pope cuz they were trying to get a you know, a reasonable solution to this problem. No need to get out of hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, Boniface was 73. So even though he was released, he got in Incredibly ill after that. He was taken by uh, a really intense fever and died about a
1: month later. Turns out when you severely beat a 73-year-old man, it's hard for him to recover.
0: Yeah, especially when we're talking about the 1300s. Yeah. They're not... They don't make him quite as tough back then. 73 is pretty old. I mean, 73 is old now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 73 back then was... That's, that's way up there. Yeah. So, I guess... In some sense of talking about it, their Boniface problem was solved.
1: Yeah, okay. Kinda. But I'm sure that doesn't mean that they can just start taxing the church. Not so much. So what happened was they they,
0: uh, elected another Italian pope, but one that they saw as being a little bit more, let's say a little less hard-headed than Boniface had been hoping to kind of make amends with Philip. I mean, Philip was very much on the mind of the Enclave when they were making this choice for Pope because this is a big problem, he just slapped the Pope. Clearly, he does not have as much respect for uh, for the office as we would all like, so mm-hmm. we better make nice with this guy. So, Benedict XI is, is elected, and one of the first things he does is rescinds Philip's excommunication, lets him back into the church. it's a peace gesture. Mm -hmm. And he kind of backpedals a little bit on some of the whole the Pope is above the King stuff. But, and this is something the Cardinals hadn't really been counting on, he kept the uh, excommunication against Nogare in place, as well as reaffirming the excommunication of all the 2,000 people who had been at the kidnapping. And basically said, listen, I'm not going to budge on this one. And Nogare was actually the envoy to the, the, the Vatican when getting the whole uh, Philip's excommunication thing lifted. And he wasn't too happy about this. Benedict XI died under mysterious circumstances about eight months into his papacy. I can't confirm it wasn't not a poisoning. <laughs> yeah. Possibly by Nogare himself. I, we don't know. I, to be fair, I, I should be very clear about this. We don't know for sure. There was no reason he should have just straight up
1: died. What we're seeing here, though, is um, that I can't imagine anybody at this point really wants to be the Pope. If you look at the three before that... Unfortunately, you don't really get the choice, as we saw poisoned, with beaten, Clement, right? Forcibly made Pope and then incarcerated.
0: Yeah. Well, you, you, if you're elected Pope, you... It's... I mean... Today you could, as far as I understand, uh, today you could turn down, I think. But generally, what's done today is that uh, the 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 cardinals informally meet beforehand, and they kind of get things out there. Like, listen, don't make me pope. You know, they they kind of test the waters. They figure out who like the main front runners are, who the main contenders are. And if you really don't want to be pope, and you notice that your name's floating to the top a lot, that's when you start sidling up to people and being like, "Hey, what's up, um, <laughs> Cardinal Colin? Don't make me pope. I'm not gonna, I, you know." And I mean, just like maybe not quite that bluntly, but you, you make it known that it's not gonna work out for you. Yeah. So, anyways, yeah, you don't you don't have much of an option. There has to be a pope, and and what's more, we they they really need a pope in place because the longer there's no pope, the longer Philip kind of just runs amok. Right. They finally settle on uh, Clement V, who was french uh he actually wasn't a cardinal which is unusual he had been an archbishop and he had served directly under benedict XI, which is kind of where where they got him and it, it took them a little bit to to uh to elect him i mean conclaves can run really long like na- nowadays they'll, they'll take like a couple of weeks they they could take years and years uh earlier in history just because they you know cardinals have to come from around the world to uh, to vote in conclave, and, and uh, you know, you get a little bit more political, it's a little bit more deadlocked, things like that, and you need a pretty good majority to actually be elected pope.
1: Right.
0: It's not just like a, a simple majority. That so makes sense. So there was a problem at this point in time where uh, there was more or less an even number of Italian and French cardinals, and they were basically blocking each other out. So it took them about a year to settle on Clement V, and... They were hoping that he was enough of a peacemaker that this whole Philip thing should again work itself out Uh, it turned out they didn't just get a peacemaker they got a complete rollover now again this is something i cannot prove in any way shape or form there's a good chance there were some backroom deals made where either political favors or just money traded hands to get clement elected and whether or not that's true Clement certainly acted in a manner that would suggest he felt that he owed his office to Philip. He was Philip's Pope. So this is kind of the second Pope he just sort of has in his pocket.
1: Right. This one, you know, in a slightly more Mm backrooms kind of sense. But I mean, it's not, you know, while his election
0: is very shadowy, very mysterious, uh, the fact that he was a Philip supporter is not... In any way ambiguous, the first thing he does is appoint nine French cardinals to help offset that pesky stalemate that had resulted in his own election. Right. And uh, a much bigger thing, he moved the seat of the papacy to Avignon in France, away from the Vatican, away from Rome. He was a French pope, like through and through. So what does any of this have to do with the Knights Templars? Remember those guys? I I recall, yeah. Remember how when we started all of this, Philip owed a lot of money. Guess who he owed it to? The the bank, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. Yeah, to the Templars, because the Templars would uh, loan money at this point in time, and to the king. Yeah, to a state. They they had they were incredibly wealthy, and they it, I mean Philip himself borrowed something in the order of five hundred thousand livres from them. Just for a one wedding, I believe it was for a dowry for, for his wife, uh, let alone the, the the other state functions that you know he he put himself in debt to them over, and that his
1: father had put the, put the crown in debt to them over. He wasn't super good with money. I'm getting that impression. I think that's a little unfair <laughs> towards <laughs> but he's, Philip. In but the, he's the fair. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> no, but I I, I think. I think he definitely inherited his father's money's pro- money problems. War isn't cheap. It's not cheap for a winner or for a loser. And to fight wars, you need money. And this is where they were getting the money for the wars. It's not really Philip's fault that his father fought a bunch of wars. Well, yeah, got, got a little bit uh, carried away. <laughs> Fair enough. I, not that he didn't contribute to it himself, but, you know, it, it's, it's not really his problems that are going on there. So Philip decides to deal with this in, like, the most prudent way possible, which is to go over the Pope's head, declare all Templars heretics, and demand their immediate arrests. Wait, what? You look real confused right now. Why are you so confused, Colin? What doesn't make sense here? If you're thinking any of it,
1: you are right. It makes no sense whatsoever. He declared the Templars to be heretics. Mm -hmm. On what ground?
0: Reports from ex-Templars, supposedly. Here's the thing about medieval law. And uh, I I never got a chance to ask you, did you ever get a chance to listen to the the Witch Trials episodes? No, I meant to. I never did. That's okay. I, I would recommend people listen to it because I go into this in a lot more detail. But the Inquisitory System of Law basically presupposes that the court is actively involved in the accusation and investigation of a crime. Whereas what we're used to, adversarial law, the court is ideally, supposedly impartial and moderates and then passes judgment on a dispute between two parties. So in the inquisitorial system, essentially being charged with a crime was basically the same thing as actually having done the crime. The other thing about the inquisitorial system is that confessions were like the main source of conviction. And confessions were allowed under torture ah only one session of torture doesn't say how long the session of torture needs to be so uh especially in the witch trials but also in any uh heretical trials uh confessions were all over the place it was so easy to get a confession they were very good at torture at this point in time what's more and i mean usually these heretical trials are run by the church is the big thing here right like the church is running inquisitions against heresy Your best bet, if you're ever thrown back in time and accused of heresy, is to confess and say that you're sorry and then say that some other people did it too. Because you're given a more lenient sentence if you seem repentant. And you're given an even lighter sentence if you're able to implicate other people. Because if you can implicate other people, that means you really did it. And you can't have done it alone. And if you're really repentant, you would understand that turning in your neighbors is what's best for them as well as for you. This is how witch trials get going. Right. So if you are ever... I am I, dead serious. That's how this system works. That is your best option. Say, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. I'm going to change my ways. Dole out whatever sentence you want. Also, who do you want me to say did it? Because they did it.
1: Okay, but the knights are... They seem like very principled folks. Mm-hmm. They seem like they're not going to admit to heresy especially given that that's like the opposite of what they're standing for at this point mm-hmm. so I'm going to take a, a guess mm-hmm. and say that this did not go smoothly for them did not go smoothly for the Templars or did not go smoothly for the courts how, how are the courts enforcing this like if it, they, they don't have church backing right well it, I mean
0: the state is capable of carrying like the, the state's Um, legal system is also inquisitorial. But the prosecution of heresy has up until this point been the domain of the church. What Philip is doing here is not only dealing with his money problems, but he's also asserting a level of spiritual authority over the church by saying that the king of France
1: has the spiritual authority to prosecute heresy. Right. So it's a power play that's solving his money problems. Philip was a lot of things he was not dumb. Fair enough. Okay, well then I don't feel like it's going to go well for either of them.
0: I mentioned at the start of the first part that the fact that this is the 13th topic we're doing is is kind of interesting, seeing as uh, uh, it's the Templars. What Philip did, because the Templars are very well informed, they have a really good network, he issued orders in September to have the of of uh, 1307, to arrest all Templars. They were sealed orders, and everyone was informed not to make any arrests until October 13th, 1307. This was to make sure that everyone had gotten their orders and would be able to strike at the same time. Uh, October 13th, 1307 was a Friday. Now, there are a number of different places that people point to for the whole Friday the 13th thing. Also very common is the fact that there were 13 people present at the Last Supper and that Jesus died on a Friday. But I kind of like this one because it was a super bad luck day for the Templars. It, it, it's just really interesting. I mean, uh, it's not one of the more common theories for that that superstition, but yeah. it's, it's one of my favorite personally.
1: And when you don't know stuff, hey, you might as well pick one you like. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody was told that they are to, what, arrest Yes. The Templars, all on that same day? Yes. And that way they're not able to organize themselves? Exactly.
0: I feel like this is a really good place to take a break.
1: Sounds good. Cliffhangers. Yeah.
0: (laughs) When we come back, we'll talk about what exactly they were charged with and sort of what became of it. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Colin Oliver. Hello. And we've been talking about uh, mostly things that have nothing to do with the Knights Templar, mostly about the papacy, the French crown, the relationship between the two, which hasn't been great. It's been a lot of kidnapping and Pope slapping and, uh, (laughs) you know, the like. Yeah. But uh, kind of brought it back around to the French, uh, specifically Philippe IV, owing the Templars a lot of money and deciding to deal with it by... Uh, getting rid of the order instead of actually just paying back the money that he owed. It's a
1: really jerk move.
0: It's a huge jerk move. So the charges were heresy, but obviously you have to get a little bit more specific than that when you're just charging someone with heresy. You have to have something specific that they're being charged with. And they ostensibly were going off of uh, testimony from uh, ex-Templars who had, you know, left the order and were testifying to these things happening within their ranks.
1: Now, were these people identified or? No, they didn't
0: need to be because uh, under Inquisition law, the adversary is the court itself, not another accuser. Right. So they don't need to be present for the trial, like the person that's brought these charges. Because really the, the, the court itself is bringing the charges against the individual or against, in this case, the, uh, the group of people. And therefore, who brought the information to their attention in the first place isn't actually relevant information. And things like the right to face your accuser are, you know, four or five hundred years out in terms of civil, civil liberties. So, you know, it just wasn't really necessary. That and it may or may not have been made up by Philip. It's, yeah. it's hard to
1: say. So you say ex-Templars, but this doesn't feel like an organization that you really leave.
0: Well there were the um the contracted members that we talked about last time right the, the there were there were certain people often often squires but there were also knights who would serve for a certain term they would turn in all of their equipment their horses all of that work with templar goods and then at the end and live by templar rule and then at the end of their contract they would they would be given back all of their possessions or the value of their possessions. Right, yeah. So those people could leave the organization without fear of any sort of reprisals. I don't know how easy it would be for someone who pledged their life to the Order to give it up, and I doubt it was a common thing. I'm sure there was some sort of mechanism for it, but I don't think it's... I, I think that's something taken equally seriously to to joining the Order in the first place. I don't think this is something that you,
1: you pick up and put down frivolously. Well, since it's, you know... A way of life they really dedicate themselves to every aspect of it yeah it, it really is a monastic order as much as it
0: is a uh, uh a military one right so these charges against them there, there were five initial charges and and we'll kind of run through them quickly and then i want to talk a little bit about like where they would have come from like why they would be making these charges against them because you know we, we don't have to dance around it was it, it was made up It was fabricated to remove the Templars from the picture for the convenience of the the French crown. So there were, as I said, five of them. There was uh, renouncing and spitting on the cross during the initiation ceremony. Sounds pretty bad. Mm -hmm. There was kissing the initiate on the anus, the navel, and the mouth during initiation. Okay, uh, in that order? (laughs) <laughs> not specified <laughs> um although i always see it in the list in that order so I, I don't know maybe for maximum effect maybe because it was asserted that that was the actual order i, I have no idea fair enough again not a thing that actually happens yeah so. but number three promoting unnatural lust within the novices and uh creating an environment in which it was considered normal to give into these uh these uh, lustful urges this is all code for homosexuality. Right.
1: This is a big group of dudes. Yes. No women allowed. Right. hmm Yep.
0: There was a charge that the cord worn by... Uh, there was a cord that was worn by all Templars at all times. They never took it off. And that this cord was consecrated by wrapping it around the, uh, an idol, which was a head with a beard. Okay. I know, that one sounds a little bit tame compared to inappropriate kissing and all that.
1: Uh, I know how they feel about idols.
0: <laughs> that is true. that that's the that's the big key, but we'll 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 circle back around. And number five, priests of the order did not consecrate the host during mass. okay? Okay, so why are these bad? Well, I think renouncing and spitting on the cross is pretty self-evident why that would be a problem. Yeah, the inappropriate kissing, I can also see why it's a bit of an issue mm-hmm. um, as well as the unnatural lust. that's th- those ones are pretty those ones are pretty clear. Uh, The fourth one, the one about the cord wrapping around the head, that's absolutely about idolatry. And this idea that they would wear... There was this idea at this point in time that demons were fairly real, fairly concrete, and fairly powerful, and that a demon could actually imbue something like a cord with some sort of supernatural power. So that not only is this a symbolic uh, act of heresy through idolatry, but that these cords would actually be demonic in nature after this consecration right and that final one about not consecrating the host i mean the consecration of the host during mass is essentially the most important thing that happens during the catholic service so that transubstantiation of the host into the literal body and blood of christ is is the the pinnacle of of holiness within that ceremony and to not actually consecrate the host is making the entire thing into a mockery of the 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 mass proper which was something that supposedly heretics would do you know you've heard of uh, things like the black mass um it's often i mean the 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 black mass is kind of a, a subject in and of itself it's this whole thing but really there was no one definition of it there was no you know there was there was no book there was no like instruction guide but in general, it was considered a, a mockery of the mass proper. And by not consecrating the host, that would be mocking the, uh, the ceremony itself. Right. And I mean, when you look at these charges, it's, it's interesting because uh, they're very, very similar to basically all of the other inquisitions against heresy that are going on at this point in time. So there's some other big heresies that are being investigated by the church uh, in and around this time or, or, or somewhat before this time that... The charges often look exactly the same each time. Now, in general, the heresies that the church was investigating were relatively tame. Like if you were to look at them today, you would see that as a fairly valid Christian denomination in terms of their, you know, their beliefs and their rituals and things like that. But at the time, the uh, focus on adherence to dogma sort of stipulated that you couldn't let variations of Catholicism exist. Right. And that was a whole thing. Yeah, that was a big big thing at this point in time you know right up until the the protestant reformation right, right yeah and i mean the only reason the protestant reform eh, i shouldn't say the only reason that's very unfair but uh, <laughs> w- one of the big reasons that the protestant reformation is seen as a as a as, as a milestone is that that's the first time an attempt at a reformation wasn't successfully repressed by the rest of the church i mean there were many other reformers that came before martin luther that just weren't successful at doing what he finally managed to do namely breaking from the catholic church so these these heresies aren't particularly insidious when you look at the actual theology of them however the way that they were best dealt with within the church was basically to ascribe all of these fairly demonic qualities to them
1: Make it look really, really bad so that everybody will hate them. Exactly.
0: It 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 simultaneously alienates people uh, due to these seemingly you know inhuman acts that they're committing, and provides a really familiar narrative for for people who aren't involved in the Inquisition in any way. So when they hear news that you know the the Templars have been accused of wrapping a cord around a, a an idol head. That's the sort of thing that people would hear and go, "Oh, that's a thing that heretics do.
1: They're probably heretics." I was gonna say because they're, I guess, probably a fairly well liked organization. I mean, up they, until this point, they weren't
0: disliked. I, I, I mean, they were still gaining. They were still getting a lot of uh, donations and the like, and they weren't. You know, there, there were people who resented their their wealth and their power, but that was really more of a a personal issue with them and not a an issue of faith Mm -hmm. you know no one no one doubted up until this point that the templars were holy men you know they they were well known for sticking to their to their beliefs to their vows so yeah it would be quite a shock for people to hear about all of this that being said when they hear the charges they're hearing very familiar charges and and it's just this kind of uh this kind of set narrative about what heresy looks like that's being used that sort of provides like a a symbolism or a shorthand for what people believe heresy to be and and it's really interesting to look at heresy at this point in time because really what it does is give you less of an idea of what unorthodox Christianity looked like at the time and much more of an idea of what the average Christian believed to be the most anti-human repulsive types of behaviors right so it's it's very much a, a, a reactionary sort of set of um, qualities or actions
1: they know exactly what to say
0: to set people off exactly and i mean one of the biggest things that's missing from the narrative of the the templars uh so-called heresy is normally there's a lot of um extremely misogynistic uh temptation from women that have been tempted by succubi which are sexy demons Um, (laughs) right They there's a lot of so so a sexy demon comes along, tempts a woman into heresy, and once she's fallen from grace, she tempts men into heresy. So there's usually this this uh this narrative of, of sort of uh sexual depravity that goes along with this. And that's not really available to the Templars because of their vows of never Touching women, even their relatives, let alone looking at them for too long. Right, and so, that's
1: well known. I think that's a little bit harder for them
0: to lie about. Exactly, which is where you get the the homosexual angle to right. this whole thing, because part of part of that narrative of heresy is sexual depravity. And if you can't have this this uh, demonic temptation angle, might as well go for homosexuality, which is also seen as as quite uh, uh, quite unnatural. Right. So. You know, we talked last time about, you know, how your best bet under the Inquisition system is basically just to confess and implicate your neighbors. uh, Because if you don't, they're just going to torture a confession out of you anyways. So not a lot of people like volunteered confessions, but once the torture starts, they started getting confessions on all of these charges. Right. And they actually started adding charges as they uh, as they kept going. uh, Various other uh, really typical heretical charges biggest one would be uh, idol worship so actively worshiping idols as part of their services uh, specifically a name kept coming up uh, Baphomet okay as a uh, as an idol uh, or a demon that they worshiped as part of their like that 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 would be the the main sort of focus of their order was worship of Baphomet is that what they thought the head was uh, it was postulated afterwards however here's here's the thing about Baphomet and we'll we'll kind of look at a little bit of like what you know, where these charges are coming from, like how they how they originated. But one one Templar would confess that Baphomet was this bearded head. Other ones would say that it was a head that had, you know, feet on it. There was another confession that it was uh, a head with three faces or um, a cat with the face of a man. There were all sorts of like versions of Baphomet. And, you know, the reason for this is because there isn't a Baphomet idol in every Templar house. And what you end up getting out of these these uh, torture confessions is they're literally trying to say anything that they think that their interrogators want them to say. Just to stop the torture. Exactly. So if they have heard the name Baphomet thrown around as uh, an idol that supposedly heretical Templars worship, and they confess to themselves having been uh, worshippers of Baphomet, and an inquisitor asks them what does baphomet look like right and they've never actually seen baphomet but they just want it to stop they will try and think of the most diabolical literally diabolical thing that they can think of (laughs) and that's where you get things like a a head with three faces or or uh you know a a cat with the head of a man right i don't know a cat with the head of a man doesn't sound that terrifying no but it is unnatural (laughs) and that's important because you have to remember that demons aren't necessarily hideous but they are unnatural, natural right and i know that's a bit of a, a fine distinction but it is really really important because you know we we again talked before about the natural order of the world right and this idea that things are supposed to be a certain way and anything outside of this order is diabolical in nature right so so you know even if a cat with the head of a man doesn't seem that bad it, it's still not supposed to be right right yeah so I mean, they've got all of these confessions coming out of France, where the uh, the French crown is running the Inquisition. But Philip is also putting pressure on Pope Clement basically to expand this Inquisition uh, worldwide. So he more or less forces him to issue a papal bull to have all Templars in all countries arrested. Now this is kind of taken, you know, more or less seriously depending on the country, but it is also a papal bull, and you kind of have to follow those pretty closely. Like they're they're kind of important things, right. and in most places they were they were arrested. Now the conviction rate, especially you know on this on these charges of um, heresy, f- depended vastly on the amount of torture used, which kind of makes sense. So somewhere with uh, somewhere like England that tends to have a little bit better uh, developed legal system at this point in time, where they wouldn't be as keen on using strictly torture to elicit a confession. They're not going to see nearly as many arrests um, whereas france executions everywhere yeah, yeah there were several hundred people executed and you know we often talk about the templars as kind of disappearing overnight and that's not really true uh it took several years to process this uh these cases there were proceedings in england germany or what would become germany i should say in the italian states in cyprus remember they helped with that uh Uh, that coup in cyprus so they were kind of keen to get rid of them there yeah to some extent they were worried about the amount of influence and power because they had been considering making cyprus into a a templar state i was going to say
1: i thought they were in charge of cyprus like i thought that was home base it it was for them but
0: the thing is when the when the pope comes along and says actually all templars are heretics that you, you don't really have a lot of basis for your power anymore i mean you have you know, the, the, the literal military power of the people stationed there, but in terms of political power or perceived power, you've just gone down a lot of notches, especially because I mean if you tried fighting back, if you tried defending yourself, uh, the Pope is going to side with the, the Cyprians, not with you, yeah. Um, and there's a good chance that you'll see armies coming from France to help defend the, the people of Cyprus against the Knights Templar. They don't have a great chance there. So, as I had said earlier, the arrests were in 1307. By 1312, Clement actually dissolves the order. So there are no more Knights Templar as far as the papacy is concerned. It's his withdrawn papal support for them. And that was, like, the main basis of their power, the ability to, you know, move across international borders unmolested, their ability to live tax-free, you know, all of this stuff
1: is, is based on their support by the Pope. So I'm a Templar. Mm-hmm. And I dedicate the entirety of my life towards this order. I'm essentially a monk. Mm-hmm. And I'm told by, you know, the leader of my religion mm-hmm. that, you know, it's, it's all for naught. Yep. No longer a thing. Pack mm-hmm. up. Go home. That's correct. It's a rough deal. I mean, technically, you should be
0: turned in for trial for heresy. Right. That's, that's really the next step. Is, is you should you should not even just pack up and go home. You should turn yourself in. That would be the right thing to do. It'd be the dumb thing to do, but <laughs> yeah. you know, according to what's going on at this point in time in this very turbulent five years, you should turn yourself in. Obviously, most people didn't. Yeah, that would be a really bad idea. All of their assets were supposed to be turned over to um, the hospitalers, uh, at least according to the papal bull. Now, the reality of it, especially in France, but in most places, was that those assets didn't go to the hospitalers, but rather to the local governments. Right. I mean, Philip was looking for solutions to his money problems. What better solution than stealing all of the Templars' money Taking in Taking the rest of the money from the people you were borrowing from in the first place. Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: So you go to the bank, you borrow a whole bunch of money... Then you burn it down and tell them that the rest of the money that's there is still yours, and you don't owe them anything else anymore. That's really what he managed Such to do. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Now in Portugal, they actually weren't disbanded, or, or rather, uh, they they didn't uh, disband. Rather, what they took, what they did was take all of these resources, so you know all that property and all of that money, and they just renamed it. Uh, they they called themselves the Knights of Christ, and that order actually continued for several hundred years after that under the new name. So all of the the Portuguese Knights Templar did they did okay. Still a really rough transition for them, but not nearly as rough as say France. Yeah. Uh, um, so you know the 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 experience of the Templars varied quite a bit. Um, there was a, a notably lax uh, archbishop in. Scotland. that supposedly led a lot
1: of people who were known Templars. He let them off the hook from the whole going through the Inquisition thing. Everybody knows, except maybe the general public, that this is complete baloney. Yeah, absolutely. So you'd have to believe that some of the decent folks in the world would give them a buy. Except they'd have to be in defiance
0: of the Pope to do so. Yeah. Which is a really... You know, a really difficult thing to do at this point in time. You know, if you're an archbishop in Scotland, you're probably going to listen to the Pope on most things. To actually, to actually go against those orders is is a big deal. I think it really deserves some some recognition.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: Now it's interesting. Um, when, when we look back, we didn't we didn't find this until you know actually a, a few years ago. It was in the early two thousands. There was this uh, this document called the the Chinon parchment which outla- outlined the fact that Pope Clement himself was actually not all that on board with the prosecution of the Templars. They investigated, you know, the, the, the church investigated shortly after the, uh, the initial arrest by the, by the French crown and found no indications whatsoever to suggest that the, the Templars were heretics and for good reason. That being said, they also found that the damage to the reputation of the Templars was so great that it was probably more prudent for the papacy to disband the order and reshuffle those resources to the hospitalers than it was to keep backing what was quickly being perceived as an incredibly heretical organization. So I I, I found that really interesting. I mean, one year after that initial uh, arrest, they
1: they were already going like this whole thing is baloney, but they kept letting it it go on. Because otherwise we're ultimately going to do more damage to our organization. Yeah, it was a PR, very calculated decision. Yeah. But it was a decision
0: that was made to, to just kind of let this happen. So really only a few hundred of the knights were actually accounted for. For all of these arrests, for all of these executions. And they were being executed uh, by being burnt at the stake. Let's not dance around this. It was a, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible way to die. It's extremely painful. It takes a long time. It's, it's awful. Don't pick that one if you ever have the choice. <laughs> I mean, there were more than 15,000 Templar houses uh, when the arrest warrants went out across Europe. That's a lot of people. That's... I mean, we don't have exact numbers, but to to uh, to guess that they topped 100,000 wouldn't be a huge stretch. And they executed a few hundred. Mm-hmm. Yes, but they lost all papal support and I mean it's it's kind of hard to to imagine how much of a an effect that would have on an organization but the the closest thing I can think to compare it to is is something like one of the uh one of the priestly orders like let's say that the the Jesuits all of a sudden the pope comes out and says all Jesuit priests are actually I'm, I'm disbanding the Jesuit, the Jesuit order there's no such thing as Jesuits anymore as far as the Pope is concerned. Do you think those priests are just gonna keep pretending like they're you know like, like nothing has changed? No, of course not. They're gonna have to make some really really big changes in their lives. Likewise with the Templars. I mean yeah, they were still knights, yeah, they were still pious men but like what what did they have to latch on to? Well, this is all they know mm-hmm. So what do they do? Here's a better question. What happened to their archives? Because we actually don't know that. It was supposed to be turned over to the Hospitallers. And man, Philip IV really wanted his hands on those. Because those archives contain not only the, the names and therefore the number of uh, active Templars. But it also contained records of all of the properties that they hold. It contained records of all of the ships that they owned. It contained records of all of the money that they had. Right. And that, that last one was really the one that he was real interested in.
1: You can imagine that the Templars would not want this to fall into uh, Philip's hands. Man, if, if that ever
0: came to light, if those archives ever somehow were found, I, oh man, I can't even imagine the amount of information and very useful information that would come out from that.
1: So is it that nobody knew where they were? Like, was it a secret location on purpose? As far as I understand, they were destroyed. Okay. Probably
0: to keep people from getting, gaining that information. Because, I mean, you know, Philip was already going around executing as many as he possibly could. This was for their own safety. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you protect your entire order if somebody can come in and take a list of, of all of the people that are part of it and all of the places they could possibly hide? And all of the things that they own. hmm Yeah. If I was in charge of the archives and that order went out, I would be sitting there with matches all day long, just
1: torching it, because that really seems like the most prudent thing to do. But there's no record of that actually occurring. No. The torching of the archives. Correct.
0: They just somehow got lost in the administrative shuffle of turning everything over to ostensibly the hospitalers, but more realistically, the local government. Right. So, I mean, in reality, probably what happened is most of the... Templars just joined the Hospitallers. They were very, they, they were close enough as an order and as a philosophy to what the Templars uh, were at this point in time that it would, I mean, it would be a difficult transition, of course, but it, it would be a, a life that they would understand and could, uh, could live with. And I mean, there were certainly definite examples of people joining the Hospitallers. It's just that you know, again, when we don't even know really how many of them there were, it's hard to account for their whereabouts and for their movements after
1: after this order to be uh, to be disbanded. Right. And I'm sure we can say that the hospitalers didn't grow by 100,000. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. And
0: I, I mean, but, but the other thing, too, is that's 100,000 over all of Europe. Right. Which is a relatively big place. And, you know, a couple of guys here and there isn't going to really raise any eyebrows. You know, if we were to somehow look at the records now, and I, I have no idea if this has ever been done, but if we were to look at the records now and look at, at uh, enrollment in the, this sort of 1307 to 1314 period, I would wonder if they saw a, uh, a larger than usual increase in uh, in their ranks. But right. it could also be that the record keepers intentionally obscured that
1: information. So, Which would make sense as well. I guess the hospitalers wouldn't want to acknowledge that they were admitting templars exactly
0: so at the end of all this like the whole the whole fallout of all of this was that the church actually only charged three templars with heresy Uh, one was the uh the grand master at the time jacques de Molay, and uh, the other two were two of his like close subordinates and they weren't actually charged with uh specifically heresy rather they were charged with there's there's this weird thing with uh, heretical inquisitorial law, where if you confess to a crime and then recant on the crime, it's not so much that you're saying, hey, I didn't mean to confess those things, but I was being tortured, so I kind of had to. You're seen as a relapsed heretic at that point in time, which is about as unfair as anything else in inquisitorial law. <laughs> yeah. But... What they were actually charged with was recanting. And, uh, you know, he, he famously made a statement, something along the lines of the only thing I'm guilty of is betraying my order by confessing these false crimes. But which, you know, is, is quite noble of him, but uh, uh, it really wasn't good enough. And, and and the church kind of had to make an example as evidenced by the Chanel parchment. Is that the best way to go about it? Probably not. But Clement doesn't really seem to have a whole lot of latitude in this situation, so I can kind of understand how this shook out. Yeah. So all three were burned at the stake. De Molay requested that he be tied up with his hands together, clasped in prayer, and to be oriented towards uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, which he could see from the place that they were being burned. And apparently from the flames, he cried out that God understood who was truly responsible for these atrocities and that he would make sure that they were punished accordingly or something to this effect. And interestingly enough, both Pope Clement and uh, Philip IV died within a year of the execution of de Molay. Clement succumbing to a long running illness, a very long illness. And uh, Philip had a a stroke while hunting. It was just kind of a freak accident. Hmm. Now, if we, if we, Looked at every single person in history that sort of cursed their accuser from the uh, from the execution stand. Uh, we'd find a lot of them that you know the, the accusers went on to lead long and happy lives. But it is interesting in this case. That it's like, a it's a fun confluence yeah, of yeah, events. It means very little, but it is very fascinating. Yeah, and I mean let's let's be super clear. Like they did not do anything. I mean even even Philip didn't really try to hide the fact that. It was more or less a power grab. I mean, to the point where he had de Molay serve as a pallbearer at a at a funeral for a family member the day before, on October 12th, so the day before the arrests. Right. So after he had already issued all of the arrest orders for heresy, if you're about to accuse someone of heresy, a, a group of people of heresy, you don't get their leader to serve as pallbearer at a family member's funeral
1: no surprised nobody called that up i i I imagine a
0: number of people did and it didn't matter inquisitorial law is not known for its uh proclivity for giving the defendant the right to defend themselves it's not strong on that point
1: no (laughs) so let's
0: talk a little bit about what you know where these charges came from why they would seem plausible to someone that was hearing about these charges we had things like spitting on the cross or the priest not consecrating mass now we've talked a lot about the uh, the templars living at this uh, confluence between the islamic and christian world in the holy land and and having a lot of contact with muslims at a time where to, today we look at the 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 relationship between the west and, and the islamic world as as being somewhat of a line i mean we're we're basically mixed completely compa- compared to at that point in time, they, there was there was such a hard cultural divide that there was very little understanding of each other. One of the big concerns, especially when fighting in the in the Crusades at this point in time, wasn't that you would die in battle, but that you would actually be kidnapped and forced to convert to Islam. So one of the things that it's suggested that the, the Templars may have engaged in, especially for people uh, stationed in the Holy Land, is training in how to commit apostasy to uh, you know, to to renounce Christianity, how to appear to renounce Christianity, without actually giving it up. So they they called it uh, apostasy with the head, but not the heart. The idea being, you know, if if you're if you're uh, captured by an Islamic army, it's better to survive to return at some point than it is to necessarily die for your faith. Now. I'm not sure how much I believe that this is the case in w- when we're talking about the Templars, specifically because they seem to value martyrdom so highly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, it's a really interesting proposition for why somebody might have come away from the Templars saying that this is a practice that is common within their ranks. Right. Um, we we talked about the uh, the sort of supposed sexual deviance within the uh, within the order. I think that one's pretty self-explanatory where that's coming from. You get a bunch of guys together and you can't accuse them of doing weird sex stuff with ladies. So they must be doing weird sex stuff with each other. That's the only only explanation. Baphomet is a really interesting one. Mostly because we don't really know where that word comes from, Baphomet. There's a lot of really interesting uh, theories about it, though. One of them that I kind of like is that Baphomet is a bastardization you know, kind of a, a, a telephone game version of the name Muhammad, Baphomet, Mahomet, which is a very common spelling, M-A-H-O-M-E-T, right? Okay. Mahomet, and then Muhammad. The suggestion being that this, uh, again, this closeness with Islamic society would make them far more uh, familiar with Islamic culture and religion. Um, which is absolutely something that would have happened while they were stationed in present-day Israel. I mean, come on, they had the beards. They had the beards and everything. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, the, the theories on Baphomet just do not stop. Like, they, there's so many out there. Uh, there's another one suggesting that Baphomet is what's known as a... An Atbash uh, cipher. Atbash is uh, a Hebrew cipher, which is basically you take you know in Hebrew letters taking A equals Z, Y equals B, C equals Oh you just reverse the whole thing? You're just reversing it, okay. right? Um, but you're doing it using Hebrew letters because the reverse of Baphomet in Hebrew can be read as Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. Interesting. That one is a huge stretch. Now there's a bunch of stuff around Jewish mysticism, which is really intriguing and really thought-provoking and interesting that is most likely coincidental at its heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know if you know anything about Kabbalah at all, but it's usually looking for codes like this within the text of uh, the Torah or the Talmud, um, looking for atbashes within, within the scripture to reveal a deeper meaning behind it.
1: Yeah, it sounded like, what's. In like present day, what do you call people who like study numbers and try and find that kind of correlation? There's Not like jobs. A... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, exactly. no. Um,
0: but I, I can't remember the, the the name you're thinking of specifically. But yeah, it's it's very much. If you look for something hard enough, you're gonna find it. Now, this is a particularly intriguing one. Uh, this would be the this would be the one that Dan Brown really likes to subscribe to, right? The, which I don't think is worth completely dismissing, just because he's a very popular author super inaccurate, but he's very good at tapping into the things about history that make people kind of sit up and take notice. So what what would that mean if it was actually a code for Sophia? Uh, the suggestion is that what the Templars were worshipping was not actually an idol of any sort, but uh, knowledge itself, the, the pursuit of knowledge, the quest for knowledge. And what people were kind of driving at is that possibly the Templars were forming a type of Gnosticism within their ranks, Gnosticism being a, a type of Christian mysticism, uh, Gnosticism meaning to know or to understand, and it's about uh, understanding deeper mysteries within the faith that they don't believe uh, the general population could uh, understand or experience fully. There have been many Gnostic sects throughout, uh, throughout history, and it's a really interesting uh, kind of sidebar to Christian history uh I, I i highly doubt that the the templars were gnostic in any way there's four or five jumps to get to that conclusion oh very much so, so. I, I well i mean there have been proposals that they were gnostic uh other than this this is seen as sort of uh supporting evidence oh, okay besides the 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 atbash to get from
1: baphomet to sophia is a little bit hinky so again Kinda like you do a little bit over, over here and then maybe you Kind of do something different over here. Uh, the
0: problem is vowels in the in the Hebrew alphabet is right. really what it comes down to. So, I mean, I, I could go on all day about Baphomet. There's 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 a number of <laughs> theories about them, but those are two favorites. Yeah. But I mean, the reality of it is that they probably weren't worshipping any idols at all. They seemed to be devoutly Christian men that were uh, extremely orthodox in their faith. And I think a lot of the things that you hear, even, even when they're trying to justify where these charges would have come from, I think are, you know, at their essence, and I mean, this is my opinion, but I think at their essence are searching for something that isn't really there. Uh, I think that people are very keen to look into the Templars and to try and find some sort of something happening there that's bigger than what really happened, because it's hard to believe that someone... Or, or, or rather, an organization as big as the Templars and as important and as powerful and as romantic as the Templars could just disappear over five years because some French king had a debt to pay. People um, love conspiracies, and that's that's I, still true today. I, I've got. I was. I was looking for uh, a couple of images on the Templars, and I found this one. And I want you to uh, look at it, and I want you to describe what you see here.
1: Whoa. Okay. Well, we've got the uh, red cross that is typical mm-hmm. of the organization. You can call it a Templar cross. That's Templar that's cross. proper. Cool. Uh, we have a, a swastika mm-hmm. in, in the bottom left here, mm-hmm. which, um, yeah, timing-wise, I mean that doesn't really line up so sure. much if they're going for a particular affiliation here. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like we got the Star of David in the bottom right, which is kind of confusing with that swastika. Yeah, I feel like they don't go together. Sure, super good. Uh, in the top left, I can't remember what that's actually called. Describe it. It's the pyramid with the eye in it. That's on the dollar bill. Yeah, it's a, it's the symbol of the Illuminati, supposedly. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's called the All Seeing Eye. And then in the top right, we've got—I have no idea what this is, but it—that's it, the Mason symbol. Oh, that's the symbol of Freemasonry. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a a compass with a G in it. Yep. (laughs) So, okay, what's what's going on here? Let's talk about what what exactly is happening.
0: What is going on here? What's going on here is I think one of the most concise examples I've ever seen of the level to which people take their obsession with the Templars. And their sort of uh, proposal of the far-reaching implications of the Templars having existed as an order. So the idea that a 12th century crusading order would have something to do with the Nazis, the uh, the Jewish conspiracy... I'm putting those in huge square, scare quotes, yeah. scare quotes <laughs> in, uh, in uh, Europe, or possibly the founding of Israel. I'm not sure which one they're going for here the freemasons and the illuminati is is frankly ridiculous like they, it's got nothing to do with any of these things right but what you have in all of these things is organizations that have a, a level of mystery or of of secrecy to them right um i mean the the Mysticism aspect of Nazism is really interesting. It the, is, yeah. uh, you know, the the whole the idea. Wolfenstein games go into that kind of. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They really do. Um, Freemasonry. I think I mentioned uh, much earlier that the thirty second degree of Freemasonry is known as a knight, a knight Templar. The Illuminati, which was a, an actual. Uh, society that existed for a couple of years in the 18th century and were more concerned with uh, philosophy than anything else there was no one world order going on there I, I mean this this whole thing it, it makes no sense but people are really uh, keen to try and make connections people love connections they love patterns and they love secrecy because well they love secrecy as long as it remains a secret as soon as it's actually revealed in any way it becomes boring and then they move on with their lives and find new secrets right but what there are there there are so many people out there that would love nothing more than to find some sort of link between like every single thing that has some sort of secret around it at all (laughs) and and i think this this image uh does a really good job of sort of sort of exemplifying that that need to to find some sort of connection so what about these connections well i mean the freemasons there was a branch of freemasonry that was founded in scotland so there's this belief that perhaps some of the uh, knights templar that were given that sort of lenient tre- uh, treatment by that archbishop that we talked about may have gone on to found the freemasons now they're kind of ignoring about a 400 year gap there but don't worry about that gap that's not important <laughs> uh, you know and it's it's just it's just things like that on and on where people are looking for connections so right what do people think about Templars now? What are the what are the uh, the ideas about what if what could have happened? I mean, I could talk about this all day. As I think I mentioned earlier, I love I love stuff like this mostly because it's fun to pick things apart. Yeah, it's kind of what it comes down to, but it's still it's still interesting because you always end up learning a little bit of new stuff, even amidst all of this nonsense that's going on, right? So I mean, uh, there are people that kind of go, well, what happened to that Templar fleet? There's a belief that it was loaded up with all of that Templar gold and a number of Templars and sailed to North America several centuries before Columbus. But hey, <laughs> um, you know, no big deal. Sure, why not? Uh, there are even people who believe that Oak Island, have you ever heard of Oak Island? I have not. Oak Island is a, a weird, mysterious burial pit on, a, on an island off of uh, the coast of eastern Canada that, uh, Nova Scotia, I believe. That some people believe that what's buried under there, because no one's gotten all the way down, it, it floods itself. Some people believe at the bottom is Templar treasure. Of course. Of course. Because that could only, that's the only thing that would make sense, right? Obviously. I mean, any secret society that you can possibly think of is given some sort of association with the Knights Templar.
1: Well, and their staying power in popular culture in general has been impressive. Mm-hmm. People love to call, to call on these guys. Yes. Or at least the image of them. Maybe they won't use the words knights templar but you'll see that like white and then red cross I well think, that's a lot that's the iconic crusader at this point in time is the white
0: the the white white with red cross patty but i, I think it's also important to note, like i mean even with all these modern theories uh, about them that the conspiracy theories started really early in fact you know within the first few years of their existence because you know if you think back all the way to the start of this they got really rich really fast right And people wanted to know why because various donations from european nobles that's not a good enough explanation i couldn't possibly account for vast sums of money here's the other thing remember we talked about where they were headquartered when they first when they were first founded in jerusalem yep on the temple mount where they believe that the original temple of solomon was have you ever heard of king solomon's gold the phrase is familiar for no particular reason. That's because supposedly the, the, supposedly King Solomon was incredibly wealthy. And most of the reason for that is attributed to being such a, a wise and, and powerful ruler that people were bringing him tons of tribute. But there's also this sort of undercurrent of conspiracy theory that somehow he was able to actually generate wealth. You know, sort of bring it from nothing. Uh, sort of this alchemical gold. Right. So there were questions about, well, what did they find when they were expanding the Al-Aqsa Mosque for their own use? Probably Solomon's gold. I mean... Possibly. Most likely. Most likely. Uh, here's another thing. Uh, do you remember what was in the temple that kept many Orthodox Jews from going up on to present-day temple mount? Oh, I'm going to seem really ignorant right now, but it's that stone. Uh, no, it's not the stone. No? Uh, although it's, it's what may have been... On the site of the stone at one point. Okay. The, uh, the original temple of Jerusalem. Right. The, uh, the Solomonic temple, which we don't actually know was even there because we can't excavate that, that site. And specifically within it, that room called the Holy of Holies, where supposedly God actually physically manifested. There are a lot of questions about what was in the Holy of Holies, because traditionally that was the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Traditionally, there was uh, inside there was the Ark of the Covenant, as well as a, a pot of uh, manna, the bread that, uh, that God sent down to the Israelites while they were wandering around in the desert that kept them fed for 40 years. Right. So there was a, these two sort of relics of their time in the desert with, with Moses, the fragments of the Ten Commandments, or the, or the tablet on which the original Ten Commandments were inscribed, and this, this pot of manna. And again, only the high priest could go in there and, and see these items. No one knows what happened to the... There, there is no tradition of what happened to the Ark of the Covenant when that temple fell. There are some people that say that the Babylonians took it back with them. There are some people that say that the uh, Israelite priests had already taken it to a safer place. There are people that say that it was in there when the temple was destroyed. Perhaps the Templars found that. Perhaps the Templars found the Holy Grail itself. And then the powers that are associated with that. I mean, often the Grail is kind of given philosopher's stone style powers in in a lot of these uh these legends I'm
1: gonna rely on Indiana Jones for my knowledge of most of this
0: yeah like with the Templar guarding the Grail for all time exactly not actually called a, a Templar ever but like the you know I, also that also that order of, of people secretly guarding the the way to the Grail that were called the uh, the Knights of the cruciform sword but were clearly supposed to be Templars yeah. like modern day Templars Templars that had survived I mean yeah, the, the, the fascination of pop culture is... It's it's everywhere. We don't need to name off. Looking at you, Dan Brown. <laughs> I'm looking at you. <laughs> but, I mean, there there was a suggestion that the, uh, that the Grail gave them increased strength, which made them such formidable uh, opponents, that it gave them longer lives, that it uh, was somehow able to produce wealth. I mean, I don't know how that's consistent with any of the other Grail legends, but, I mean... The further you get down this rabbit hole of conspiracy theories, the weirder and it gets and and just, yeah, we're we're not we're not accepting any of these things, but it's interesting to to note that people have associated all of these really uh, mythical legendary things with the Templars and sort of abstracted the idea of the Templars as these guardians of these things well away from what they actually were, which is incredibly humble men that found themselves in a position of, great power through uh what had originally been a fairly unassuming mission for their order namely to protect, protect the Pezim, pilgrims or to put, yeah exactly yeah. to protect the the pilgrims so i mean the the shroud of turin was found by the the nephew or was uh, originally presented to the clergy by the nephew of a, a templar it was believed that it had been found by the templars in the uh in the holy land now it's it's worth noting that even the church doesn't verify that the shroud of turn is actually legitimate they kind of leave it up to the believer to decide for themselves but there are a great many people in this world that believe that the the shroud of turn is uh is a legitimate uh relic and that actually existing just helps to lend credence to all of these other myths that kind of go along with them right so that leaves us with this this weird uh transformation into something that i i mean has nothing to do with the actual templars themselves and more reflects something of their their circumstances at the time of their demise which i find really really interesting because my my whole knowledge of the templars uh, at one point in time was these conspiracy theories of, 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 you know, all the relics they've protected in the past, of all the secret societies they've gone on to, to, to found, of all the ways that they're still manipulating the world around us, uh, which, which obviously are
1: untrue. But that's just capturing that very specific point in time that was their very rapid decline. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's, it's an 800 year old idea that just really hasn't gone away at all. And I find that really intriguing. And I'm sure the Templars themselves would would very much resent this uh, this picture of them, because it's not what they were about. It's not what they were about at all.
1: Yeah.
0: So I think that's a pretty good look at the the Knights Templar. Was there anything uh, you wanted to ask? Any uh, any points you uh, you wanted to expand on at all? No, I think that covered it really well. Okay, good. Yeah. I I uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun looking this one up because uh, I learned a bunch of new things, and um, I think this is one of those cases where even though the the vast majority of sort of general knowledge about a subject is completely wrong or or even non-existent sort of uh, an abstract concept um the reality of it is at least as interesting as the uh the popularized or fictionalized version of it so yeah yeah I'm, I'm really glad we got a chance to sit down and
1: talk about this so definitely thank you very much for coming on thank you for having me
0: First off, I'd just like to apologize for our unexpected extra special guest, the Blue Jay, that we picked up much more of in the recording than we ever really realized. Uh, Sorry about that. The reality of the Knights Templar is a far cry from the popular understanding of them. There's nothing to indicate secret societies, religious treasures, or really any existence after 1312. Instead, they're an interesting product of and victim of their times. They're also a fantastic example of how sometimes people will latch on to certain stories whenever there's the smallest bit of mystery surrounding them, magnifying them many times into something they really are not. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about Charlemagne. That episode will be up on July 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.